0: Victoria Police is facing serious criticism across a whole range of areas about their conduct, their complaints and investigations, procedures and their accountability to the public. Anthony Kelly is CEO of the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, which runs the Police Accountability Project. Anthony is one of around 20 legal and community representatives who have signed an open letter to Premier Daniel Andrews last week. The letter asks the Premier to address concerns raised in an IBAC committee report into the External oversight of police misconduct and corruption, and it's uh, good to have you in at Triple R, Anthony. Thanks for having me. And so, what has this committee actually raised um, with regards to external oversight of police?
2: Well, it's been 14 months now since uh, this quite extensive report uh, was tabled in Parliament in September last year, and that report was incredibly groundbreaking. It uh, was came at the end of a. Uh, 18-month inquiry that uh, heard from victims of police misconduct across Victoria, heard from agencies such as ourselves, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service and law firms and and uh, and victims themselves. And it also, um, the, the MPs involved in that parliamentary committee actually went overseas to look at investigative um, models, you know, independent police complaint investigative systems overseas in Northern Ireland and in Canada. And they published quite an extensive, incredibly well-researched uh, document um, that called upon the Victorian Government to finally uh, resource and provide the capability for IBAC, our independent broad-based Committee against, Commission Against Corruption, um, to have the resources to investigate serious police misconduct allegations. And uh, it, it, it proposed that there be a, a specialist unit within IBAC that focused on police corruption and misconduct, a division, and that they have the powers and the ability and the capability to, um, to come in very quickly and investigate those incidents um, that we hear about you know. Qu- Quite regularly these days, and um, and so far that's just sat there really. The we know the government's been looking at it, but there's been no response from Daniel Andrews from Cabinet, and that's what we're concerned about. And that's what prompted this open letter that we published last week.
0: And have you had a
1: response?
2: No, not yet. What really surprised me from from having a look at that report is
1: the the fact that iobac apparently can only investigate about two percent of the complaints it receives so otherwise the other complaints that, that are received are investigated sort of in-house by police officers themselves so is that one of your chief concerns one that there's woeful kind of under-resourcing vibe back itself but also that the process for
2: investigating those complaints itself doesn't have enough kind of independence absolutely yeah that's the crux of the problem at, at the moment if there's a a death in custody, if there's a police shooting, if there's an allegation of a human rights abuse, a serious assault um, by police, um, that gets investigated by the police officer's own colleagues, essentially. So the Professional Standards Command or a unit within Victoria Police, uh, it's, if it's serious enough they get called out. If it's an allegation that's not deemed to be serious enough, then often it could be a um, a someone local, the local, a local inspector being brought in from, a, from another area, from another police station to do the investigation, or often they're, they're um, handballed down to the local area, um, to the officer in charge of that particular police station, if it's just seen to be a, uh, a minor uh, an offence. And what that, provi- what that means is that, and we've uncovered this in our own case files, we've got um, evidence of these sort of things happening, is that there's collusion and there's minimisation and there's very poor investigations of these uh, incidents. Uh, what it means is that the the incident is is looked at from people in the same interpretive community, so people from the same uh, field, who um, who don't have an objective, unbiased uh, and view from ex- externally. I mean, when we bring these cases before magistrates or before independent, um, or you know, even um, coroners they're often viewed very differently and seen very differently. And that's what—that's why we've been calling for independent investigations uh, for so long. Mm. And I know the IBAC report looked at a range of international models that have
1: kind of, you know, more robust accountability processes. But is, is the current one that we're dealing with in Victoria, can, does that stand out as particularly rare? Or is that a common type of scenario
2: for investigating
1: complaints um, in other places in the world or other states in Australia?
2: Sure. There's a spectrum really around the world. So from um, very poor... Uh, and almost zero oversight where everything is uh, investigated by other police to very robust independent models and uh, one of the models that we're looking at is uh, we've been looking at for a long time is in Northern Ireland the Police Ombudsman Northern Ireland, or in Canada, where they have teams of trained civilian investigators um, getting to incidents within the first hour after it, after it occurs, gathering their own evidence, interviewing police, keeping them separate, interviewing victims and witnesses, and gathering that evidence right from the word go, and then um, producing very transparent reports uh, and and being able to prosecute um, police themselves. Uh, being able to recommend disciplinary charges, all those sorts of things. And that's the sort of system that really that we need here in Victoria.
0: How far away are we from that at the moment, Anthony? Because it feels... I mean, I just did a, a quick scan through the news that I'm aware of, um, I mean, just in the past week. And of course, we had protests around the country around a death in custody in the no- Northern Territory. But just here in Victoria, we had, you know, um, a big settlement um, likely to two punters who were shot by police and, in a nightclub. And that's only just now been... Being investigated. Um, the Lawyer, lawyer X Royal Commission is ongoing. Uh, there's questions being asked around the use of body-worn cameras by police and their discretion around that. And uh, even just today, there's an, an investigation into the police conduct leading up to the Burke Street killing. So it, it feels like we're back in the bad old days or is it, I mean, is this just the sense we've got at the moment? Is this the system working or what, what's what's your take on it?
2: Well, yeah, it's pretty relentless at the moment. And we're right to ask questions. We're very right to um, to query all these incidents because Victoria Police have the legislative capacity and, and uh, ability to use lethal force. They can pull guns and shoot citizens. And in the case of the inflation nightclub um, shooting that we've, we've heard about in July last year, um, police came in very, very quickly, you know, the critical incident response team and shot two people and at a nightclub. And so, there's very valid questions raised about that, and really, we don't know. The, in that sort of situation, we, the civil litigation was settled, so it was never brought before an open court. And now we hear that uh, the police didn't investigate uh, the the conduct of its own officers and the critical incident response team. And it's only now that you know, over two years later, that we're we're seeing some in, some uh, investigations, and that's just totally inadequate. Um, and all of these questions um, are raised they're not going necessarily going to be solved by an independent investigative model but at least then we've got a um, an unbiased uh, investigative system where we can you know where people in Victoria can um, at least trust a little bit more than what we're seeing at the moment. And you've been running the police accountability project
1: for over a decade out of Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. Over that time, have you at all noted a, a shift at all in in the um, the actions of police officers or their willingness to kind of change entrenched you know institutional behaviours within the police force itself? Because you've you know done a great job at raising uh, racial profiling and so on um, you know for, for particular ethnic groups. How has it been over that journey and, and have things changed
2: much? Victoria Police like to see themselves as a professional change-orientated organisation. So they, they put a lot of emphasis on training and policy development and so forth. And there's a lot of changes at those levels. Um, but the problem that we're seeing is that however good their policies are or in, you know um, their internal written um, operational practices and so forth, they're, we're not seeing those changes in the streets uh, and in the custody centres um, around Melbourne, the, the operational pol- policing is still uh, hugely problematic. That we and so our cases that uh, raised uh, the issues of racial profiling, discriminatory policing, um, you know, have seen some changes in their internal policies and training. But we're we're not seeing the practices change uh, on the streets. We're still getting prolific reports of uh, racial targeting, of um, of uh, discriminatory practices, of racial abuse, and um, it's still continuing. And that's why we're putting so much emphasis on the the systemic changes that we need to see about having that external accountability uh, and oversight
0: anthony kelly's with us he's ceo of the flemington and kensington community legal center which uh, is the organization that runs the police accountability project which has been running for over a decade and i mean maybe we can get some get specific like is there anything that's sort of common across the complaints and issues you're seeing or is there um issues that you can tell us about that um to sort of illustrate what you're talking about when it comes to, to racial profiling and the like or other mm. are other are other are sort of um, procedural police activities that are problematic for, for individuals?
2: Yeah, it's, it's hard really because policing covers such a wide spectrum of act- activities. So the police do have a legislative ability to use force and it's, it's quite worryingly common where that use of force is um, excessive. So there's a limited power to use force. They have to use force that is reasonable and appropriate under the circumstances and that's, um, But what is reasonable and appropriate is very hard to measure and it's only really if they're ever brought before a court that there's any level of scrutiny over their actions and, and behaviour and their choices to use force. So the the sort of force that we saw at the IMARC protests um, at the last week of October is a case in point. So the legal observers present reported seeing multiple cases of what could be con- um, seen as excessive levels of force Uh, If it is found to be excessive, then that makes that use of force unlawful. So the police might be susceptible to assault charges, for instance. But the likelihood of any of that use of force being... um, uh, You know, those police officers being held to account for their choices to use a baton under certain circumstances or to use OC foam against people who were not um, threatening them or, or acting violently towards them, then... Those sort of cases are very unlikely to ever be held to account uh, unless people took very expensive civil litigation um, um, cases, which takes years. It's, you know, incredibly um, resource-intensive. Um, the complaint system, you know, people have made complaints about those protests. Whether we see any outcomes from that, I don't have much hope for. And, um, and we don't have an inter- external body that has the ca- capacity to investigate them independently. So... It's it's a really it's a case in point that even when um, those actions are captured by cameras, by media, television cameras, mm-hmm. even when they're captured by, um, seen by legal observers, by trained legal observers, there's stills. Um, not no accountability. It,
0: it must be tricky. I mean, we oh, on one hand, you know, we, we most state elections, for instance, uh, uh, um, have an element of tough on crime as as part of them. And I suppose even with regards to the inquiry that's opening today on the Burke Street killings, a big criticism of police is they didn't do enough uh, in that instance. So I mean, is there a sense that uh, uh, you know it's difficult for police to make these decisions? in the moment. I mean, that's what we want them to do, but that, that they get it wrong. How accountable do we hold them? I mean, I, I suppose it's, um, yeah, I'm just interested in your response to that because um, it's it's not an easy job
2: that yeah, they're doing. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. And what um, we, we say is that there should be a level of accountability that's commensurate to their powers. So, um, you know, the power to use lethal force, for instance, there needs to be a level of accountability that respects that and reflects that uh, leg- legislative power that we provide police, or the parliament provides police. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's it's certainly the the um, the the Burke Street uh, Massacre Inquiry that's starting this week is a case in point because Victoria Police didn't want their review into the critical incident response team released. For instance, they wanted they tried to suppress that, and and thankfully the the coroner has seen fit to um, to make that part of the evidence, uh, and that's really important because transparency. I think with these sort of police procedures. And, uh, is very important uh, for the public to understand what's going on um, but it's also um, it's also really important about the 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 intrusion that police have in our daily lives is quite extensive and people experience policing very differently. So, you know, white middle-class people in Melbourne and Victoria might see police as a protective force, but for so many communities and individuals around uh, around Melbourne and around Victoria uh, are fearful of police and um, are scared about what the, what the reaction might be if they call them. Uh, and the policing responses that we see all, all too often um, either uh, make things worse or criminalize the um, people who call them uh, intrude upon lives unnecessarily and um, and it's it's something that we're concerned about in terms of just that um, the ability of police to extend and ex- intrude upon um, people's lives in ways that is uh, you know is detrimental um, the, you mentioned the law and order campaigns the, the electoral cycle that we see and the you know the racialized crime panic that Victoria's experienced over the last three or four years Really has driven a lot of the policing practices that we've seen um, over over recent years. Um, you know there is a lot of targeted and racialised policing that's going on around uh, around Melbourne, and uh, you know specific operations targeting young people of colour. And it's they mightn't say that in their operational orders. Of course, they won't mention they won't mention um particular ethnicities but we see it in practice and it's um it's equally concerning as if they were um if they did mention it explicitly um
1: off off the back of those kind of election campaigns as well and law and order really being used as the sort of um election wedge uh, we've seen a big addition to the police budget in victoria there's more police on the streets um crime as a proportion of the population has kind of gone down over the years but the accountability system over that time has not really changed. We've seen increases to the budget and so on yet the accountability system has remained more or less the same. Do you think the government is willing to improve the system as we currently have it?
2: I I would like to hope so. I hold out hope that a responsible government will see the need very clearly for a robust accountability system. Um, it's been, um, you know, for the safety of Victorians is one is one thing. So we've seen um, pensioners in Preston who have been pulled out of their homes and capsicum sprayed and brutalised, and that's been you know captured on on camera. Again, it's that that rarity. Um, but those sort of cases really exemplify why this is necessary. We shouldn't have to wait before these sort of incidents get it media attention before IBAC comes in and investigates and then ch- decides to prosecute. Um, those those members um, and I'd like to think that cabinet and Parliament and the you know the um, Victorian government have a degree of control over Victoria Police that allows them to put in these these sorts of things. It's very concerning if if they' relu- you know their reluctance is about um, how much influence and sway police and the police association have over. Um, the Victorian government and our electoral system. And
0: just before we let you go, Anthony, how cooperative are VicPol with your project, with the police accountability project?
2: We work with them all the time. Uh, ironically, on lots of at lots of different levels, we're continually discussing and, and talking with um, Victoria Police and command and so forth, um, either in the courts or in the um, or in spaces and advocacy spaces. Um, they certainly um, see us as a you know critical thorn in their side. But um, accountability is something that they is in their interest. We know that there's police members who are also calling for accountability. You can see that um, the system internally is not is not effective, and they're not seeing unbiased investigations themselves. And also, Victoria Police are cognisant of the need for in critical matters to have external bodies. So they called on the Human Rights Commission in Victoria to look at um, gender-based violence and predatory behaviour externally because they knew that they couldn't do it internally, they couldn't do the most effective job. So several years ago now, Veriok went in and did an extensive review of, of um, sexual harassment and, and um, so forth within Victoria Police and that was, you know, reasonably effective. So the need for external independent investigations we think Victoria Police are well aware of. It's just a matter of now for Parliament to... to, Take it by the middle, really.
0: It's been great kicking your brains and um, hearing about the work of the Police Accountability Project. Anthony Kelly, CEO of the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, one of around 20 legal and community reps who have signed an open letter to Premier Daniel Andrews last week, asking um, for the government to address concerns raised in an IBAC committee report. So it'd be interesting to see what comes of that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Ross Garnot has long been influential in climate and energy policy discussions in Australia. Among other things, he's conducted not one, but two climate change reviews for government, the first in 2008 and the second in 2011. Earlier this year, he delivered a series of lectures on the climate and energy transition in Australia at the University of Melbourne, where he's a, professional, a profess- professorial research fellow in economics. Ross Garnot has now produced a book spelling out the risks and rewards for australia in a low emissions economy it's called superpower australia's low carbon opportunity and we've got him on the phone it's great to have you with us ross hello Carrie. and uh what stands out um i suppose to you as being the most significant change since your latest climate change review back in 2011 what have you seen change
3: well, there's changes in uh, in the science, mainly uh, reducing uncertainty without greatly changing uh, average expectations. Uh, there've been developments in ethics. Uh, uh, we've come to understand much more clearly the ethical implications, and uh, I discuss in the book uh, the major contributions to that, including uh, Pope Francis's. Uh, Encyclical uh, on climate change. Let us see. There's been changes in the international cooperation, and on the whole, that's been productive and promising. Uh, with the Paris Agreement, tying things together in a different way, and all the countries on earth signing on to that. Although Donald Trump uh, uh, now says he wants to get out of it, of course, a big deal. If America does uh, get out of it, we can't do that overnight, and. Uh, Uh, We'll see whether he's still the president uh, at the time the crucial decisions uh, are taken on that. Uh, But uh, the really big changes are the economic ones, uh, where the costs of renewable energy have come down far faster than uh, I had anticipated in my very detailed modelling a dozen years ago. Uh, And uh, we've become more aware of the very large uh, opportunity for uh, capturing carbon in Australian soils and uh, uh, pastures, woodlands, uh, forests, and uh, uh, that's uh, uh, also uh, contributed to uh, uh, realisation. It's not going to cost as much to deal with this problem as as we thought, but uh, the, the reductions in the. Uh, costs of renewables uh, create an opportunity for, for us to get a second chance to, to process our own minerals. So we're the natural home of energy-using industries when the uh, whole world uh, moves towards zero emissions energy because we've got much better combinations of renewable energy resources than any other country on this earth
1: and i mean it's it 's good to hear some positive news in relation to I guess the costs of addressing climate change being you know much lower now than you 'd predicted in your analyses in two thousand and eight and two thousand and eleven we 've be- kind of become accustomed to hearing a lot of bad news about our inaction on climate change and that sort of thing yet there's been over the past uh, you know decade or so climate change or pr- paralysis on the climate change issue when a lot of changes in government Policy, I guess looking forward, where do you see most optimism for where we can start to transition the soonest and, and bring about some of these changes that you've outlined in your book?
3: I suppose one has to draw a contrast between uh, the, the improving opportunity uh, and uh, the for, uh, where now we can see economic advantages, more prosperity for Australians, more employment and incomes for Australians by going faster. Uh, uh, contrast between that and uh, incoherence in policy and, if you like, a uh, failure to realise the extent of the opportunity or to grasp it. Uh, There's a fair few things that can be done by innovative business and uh, a lot of things are happening in the business sector which is not being uh, uh, held down comprehensively by uh, incoherence in Government policy. Uh, There's also a lot of things that can be done by sub-level governments, uh, state and local governments, uh, even if uh, federal policy is not conducive to uh, strong action. But in my book, I put the primary emphasis on the things that can be done uh, uh, right now in this uh, current federal parliamentary term without any changes in policy, and and there's a fair bit that can be done. uh, And... uh, Uh, we can make a very good start uh, within the framework of current federal and state policies and then uh, uh, new policy decisions in future can be taken in in a political environment that's been changed by early success
0: and i mean maybe you can outline some of those opportunities Ross because I'm not sure that people you know necessarily have their head around what a hydrogen a green hydrogen economy might look like, for instance. What are some of these sort of compelling opportunities that that you see in the Australian economy?
3: Well uh, just take uh, processing a couple of a couple of our uh, minerals, a couple of the many uh, opportunities for new manufacturing industry that uh, pro- processing uh, Uh, iron ore into uh, uh, iron metal. Well, how we do that at the moment, Australia is by far the biggest supplier of uh, um, iron ore, iron oxide into the world uh, iron and steel industry. Uh, China makes half of the world's uh, primary steel and uh, gets 70% of its uh, iron ore imports from Australia. Uh, In the uh, zero emissions uh, economy, that, that won't be done by uh, uh, metallurgical coal, either mined in China or uh, or, or uh, imported from Australia. Uh, that will be done through hydrogen. Uh, when you combine hydrogen with uh, iron ore, iron oxide, you get uh, water as the uh, exhaust, as the waste product, instead of carbon dioxide. Uh, and. Uh, 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 you make uh, hi- hydrogen, uh, you-, you could make it out of coal and uh, natural gas with a lot of emissions, uh, w- uh, which uh, either are put into the atmosphere or uh, captured and-, and at great expense and put into geological structures, uh, possible but expensive. Uh, or you can make it by running electricity through water and splitting uh, uh, water H- H2O into hydrogen and oxygen, then using... Uh, the hydrogen to take the oxygen out of iron ore uh, leaving iron metal. Uh, if you do it through oxygen made from renewable energy, uh, then you've got the zero uh, uh, emissions, uh, iron, uh, for aluminium. And we're also the world's biggest uh, exporter of aluminium uh, 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 raw materials, aluminium oxide, alumina. Uh, uh, if you, already uh, we make uh, the world makes uh, aluminium metal by running electricity through a uh, molten uh, uh, alumina, uh, um, uh, aluminium oxide. Uh, mostly, that's Australian uh, um, alumina that's sent to other countries, Iceland or South Africa or Mozambique or China or uh, or Korea. Uh, and uh, uh, turned uh, into metal through electricity in those places. But uh, in the zero emissions uh, world economy towards which we're headed, uh, we'll be the low-cost uh, electricity producer as well as the source of the raw material. So the economically sensible thing to do, the low-cost thing to do, will be to uh, use Australian uh, uh, low-cost uh, renewable energy to... to uh, Pass through the uh, um, aluminium ores and make aluminium metal. Uh, it's already a, a significant industry with big plants in uh, Portland, um, in uh, Newcastle, Gladstone, uh, and a different kind of plant in Tasmania. Uh, but uh, that, that's only a small part of uh, Australian uh, uh, aluminium ore exports. Uh, uh, we, we will naturally be the place where most of that is uh, uh, is exported. And uh, as I mentioned in the book, if we turned a quarter of our iron ore exports uh, into uh, um, in, into uh, iron metal and half our aluminium ore exports into aluminium metal, that, that alone would be far more value, far more exports, far more jobs in and jobs in rural and provincial Australia than uh, all of our current coal and uh, gas exports.
1: We're speaking with Ross Garneau all about his book Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity, which was compiled following a series of lectures he delivered earlier this year out at the University of Melbourne. And some of those examples you just spoke about, Ross, some of those opportunities for Australia that exist kind of in the here and now um, as we face a transition away from fossil fuels intensive industries uh, they it sounds like there's a real opportunity for australia at at the present time but some of the issues that have arisen with climate policy around the world is that the costs of addressing climate change and transitioning come early and the benefits come a lot later and you can understand how that kind of short-termism might plague governments around the world in their decisions to embark on you know kind of a rapid scale change to their economies is it a really crucial time for australia to capitalize on this now if we are to reap the benefits in the future i mean how many years do we have to harness this potential
3: well just take aluminium Uh, aluminium now in portland in newcastle in gladstone uh, is made by uh, um, using australian uh, ores uh, and running through the, that ore, or uh, through the alumina, um, uh, electricity made from coal. Uh, that's, that's turning out to be much more expensive than the alternatives. And if we don't change that, then that industry will be dead in uh, Portland and uh, uh, Newcastle and Gladstone, uh, uh, certainly over the next decade, in some places earlier than that. Uh, but uh, and, and if we let it die, it, it's harder to get it going again. Um, uh, not impossible, and it probably will happen, but will take much longer if we uh, make the transition to low-cost renewable energy now, and I say in the book, uh, and I've got uh, a lot of analysis backing it up, that we could provide uh, power at uh, globally competitive prices to those smelters uh, right now if if we were clever in our use of the new energy. Uh, uh, do it now and those places survive and we've got a base for them to become very much uh, larger later on and of course later on we'll need a lot more than them, a lot more than in March smelters at uh, uh, Portland, Newcastle and uh, uh, Gladstone to take use of the opportunity that we new ones in other parts of Australia uh, as well, most importantly probably alongside the uh, resources of, of Western Australia. But we do set back the opportunity quite a lot if we let the existing industry die uh, using the old uh, coal technology as it becomes less competitive uh, rather than moving quickly uh, with the new technologies.
0: It's really interesting you say that because I think there was a sense around that when the car industry in Australia um, closed down and there was a sense, well, you know, why couldn't it have transitioned to produce electric vehicles or whatever, but do you think there's a, a sense that, we can ha- have our cake and eat it that we can keep emitting now and not transition but also be part of the new low economy um, low carbon economy of the future and are we deluded to think in that way do you think ross
3: uh, well cars are a different case because we didn't have great advantages compared with the rest of the world in making cars as it happens uh, we forced a decision uh, out of uh, Toyota and General Motors at a time when our exchange rate was so high that it was an easy decision for them to close. At today's exchange rate, the Toyota plant at uh, at least uh, would be competitive globally from what I know of the cost a long time ago. So so it was a a pity that... and those decisions were taken when our exchange rate was uh, abnormally high but anyway that's water under the bridge and cars are, are different because we don't have any special advantage in cars we do have a special advantage in low-cost energy because no other country has has anything like the solar and wind resources that, that we do and the combination of them is a very powerful combination when i was doing my first report i received a visit from the chap who runs the German uh, solar energy program, which at the time was the world's biggest solar program. It's now second biggest behind uh, 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 China, but it was the biggest then. And uh, it it was a little bit distressed in talking to me because it worked out that uh, the west coast of Tasmania was the worst solar resource in Australia, and it was better than the best place in Germany. Uh, So uh, we've got big natural advantages in the emerging world. Uh, of uh, energy using industries uh, that makes this opportunity much bigger than than the one for cars and it's not a matter of having your cake and eating it uh, too it's a matter of uh, eating the cake that's got the right ingredients and the, the right ingredients for the future are low-cost renewable energy
1: you've consciously proposed policies and initiatives uh, ross in this book that can sort of sit within the major parties' broad policy platforms as you say it could be kind of you know legislated and we could embark on this journey in the current term of parliament rather than advocating for something entirely you know drastically different from what we have currently have you had much of a response from from government at all of course you've played a very significant role in directing um, you know climate policy and the economics of climate policy in the past what's been the response so far
3: Oh, I've had a uh, positive response from uh, a lot of people uh, who are very interesting uh, interested in intrigued by uh, the the potential uh, for economic advantage that I spell out uh, but uh, at this stage of my life I'm uh, focusing on on setting out the ideas uh, uh, and explaining the the potential uh, uh, the days when I was directly involved in uh, policy advice uh, um, are, are a long way uh, uh, be- in the past and uh, uh, now I'm concentrating on uh, I- explaining the opportunity to the whole community including the political community.
0: And, um, and before we let you go, I'm interested in your views on, on drought and of course we've got the intense spring bushfire season happening as we speak. Um, how complex is it to talk about land use when it comes to the transition in Australia?
3: Uh, Well, we do have to take account of the uh, the, the climate change when talking about land use. And uh, in my big report uh, 11 years ago, um, simply drawing on uh, what the scientists were saying, uh, or the detailed and good science, and we had a lot of that in Australia, we have a lot of that in Australia, uh, I was saying. uh, um, I uh, pointed out that if uh, the world did nothing about climate change, we just kept. uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions growing uh, in line with economic growth uh, uh, as we had done for a couple of hundred years, then uh, then we would see a substantial drying as well as warming of southern Australia where most of our agricultural production is. And amongst other things, uh, we can uh, sadly look forward to a 90% fall in uh, irrigation uh, production. Uh, in agriculture in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, uh, now, we we, we could uh, avoid a lot of that fall. won't couldn't avoid it all. We could uh, avoid a lot of it if the world got cracking and uh, uh, took strong action on climate change. And, and that's still the uh, the case. We've suffered a lot of damage uh, in the early pages. The first couple of chapters of the book, I point out, uh, there's been a quite substantial reduction of stream flow into the uh, Murray and the catastrophic reduction into the Darling, which threatens the, uh, the future of the, the Darling as a uh, as a river system. Um, we can't bring uh, change uh, the past, but we can uh, stop it getting worse. It takes global action and uh, we need to be on the side of uh, the the, uh, forces that are trying to get rather than trying to block uh, global action. And we do have to manage our land resources in knowledge that climate change has affected what's possible. One of the problems with the uh, Murray-Darling and the uh, devastating reduction in water availability is that uh, in uh, allocating water for irrigation... Uh, we failed to take heed of very clear scientific knowledge available to everyone uh, uh, that there was less uh, and, w- and was going to be less uh, water flow in future than in the past. And, but we kept on going as if uh, uh, nothing had changed, and that meant we over-allocated water, and that's contributed to the severity of the problems in the Lower Darling are being suffered
0: at the moment and um just briefly uh i mean emissions globally haven't peaked yet i think um there was a hope that that would have happened by next year uh and I think though there, are, there is science out there saying that we can still limit global warming to one and a half degrees, which is at the lower end of what the Paris Agreement speaks of, which is limiting warming to well below two degrees. Where do you fall? Are you, are you optimistic about, uh, I suppose, the global ability to keep temperatures at that lower range rather than, than the higher range?
3: Well, it's still possible. Uh... Uh, and I'm optimistic about the opportunity to do so, and how well Australia would do if we if we played our role in that. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, optimistic about uh, us actually doing it. Um, but uh, uh, humans uh, have choices. Uh, we're, we're a we're a species that, that thinks about what it does and. Uh, Uh, The future's in our hands. The opportunity is there uh, for uh, uh, us to be on the side of those who want to stop this problem getting much worse. At the moment, uh, most other substantial uh, uh, economies uh, uh, are uh, much further down the track uh, of uh, contributing to a solution than we are.
0: Thanks so much for all your time this morning.
3: Very nice to speak to you,
0: bye. Likewise. Uh, Ross Garneau, uh, his book, Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity, is out uh, through La Trobe Press and um, you can get your hands on that. And I think you can also still listen back to his lecture series that that book is based on called The Climate and Energy Transition in Australia where that was delivered at University of Melbourne where he's a um, professorial research fellow in economics and I think a really interesting um, viewpoint. Uh, of course, Ross Garneau's uh, done not, not one, but two uh, climate change reviews for government.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. To keep the talk going, and Amy Hetherington, the Big Issue editor, is our guest next. We're going to celebrate 600 issues of that magazine. I was in my last year of journalism school when the Big Issue launched in Melbourne. I remember it well because it was a big moment um, not only to have a new publication hit the streets, but that it would be sold by vendors, and that it was also part of a not for profit with a mission to support people experiencing homelessness and disadvantage. It was a pretty unique package and 600 Issues later, um, we've got the Big Issues editor in the house, Amy Hetherington. It's like, what, 23
4: years ago? Yeah, 23 and a half years. There you yeah.
0: go. Um, congratulations to all the people that have been involved with the Big Issue over those years and it must be a good feeling to be the editor when it hits this milestone.
4: Yeah, it's a great feeling to be the editor of the Big Issue every day. It's a, a fantastic job. Um, but yes, this is a really great milestone for the magazine and for the organisation.
1: So take us back to where it all began in Melbourne back in 1996.
4: So the big issue began in in 1996 in Melbourne only. It was an idea borrowed from the UK. The big issue uh, had started there in 1991 Um, and a group of locals decided that We needed to do something as a response to the increased numbers of homelessness in this country as well. And so it was launched. Uh, It launched on the streets of Flinders Street Station. It was a cold winter's day, by as legend, Big Issue legend goes. Uh, There were around 20 vendors at that time. Uh, They sold out the 700 editions that they had within a matter of hours. So that was a great first success for the Big Issue. And obviously um we've grown a lot since then. We're all around Australia now we have around five hundred five hundred and fifty vendors selling every fortnight, um and we've impacted uh, more than the lives of more than seven thousand vendors in that twenty three years.
0: Yeah, it's a huge achievement. and so how I mean it's around the country, but how regional does the big issue go?
4: Well, we are in certain regional areas. So we're in Geelong and Newcastle. We launched Newcastle earlier this year. Um, And we have some vendors that maybe travel around uh, Geraldton in WA or uh, Bunbury or Busselton it is actually. Um, But yes, it is primarily in in the city centres. But you can also get subscriptions. So people who maybe can't access a vendor locally, or they they maybe want a subscription for their hairdressers or their doctors um, can do that too.
1: It's amazing that an organisation like the Big Issue has survived simply, you know, because it has a broader kind of social purpose beyond just providing a magazine. But also that a magazine has stuck around for that long because the whole publishing and, and news industry has been totally turned on its head with the kind of you know digital revolution and so on. How has that? How has the Big Issue managed to stay relevant, I guess, as a magazine and um, you know a, a media kind of um, artifact?
4: Well, we have a really great editorial team. Um, I do say so myself. Um, But it really is that unique quality that The Big Issue has where our relationship is with the vendors and the customers have that very much one-on-one contact. And we live in such a digital society that that relationship and those relationships um aren't as prominent as they used to be you might not know that you, you know not every exchange that you have with someone is face to face anymore um but we do have an increased readership year on year our vendors earn more money last year than they have before which is fantastic so it is testament i think to everybody that's involved whether it's the volunteers or the staff and the, particularly the vendors themselves but also our customers and the loyalty there um Also, we do get access to some really great people and I think that they uh, appreciate the model and the role that The Big Issue plays. And so that's really good for us too. So it means as a reader, you know that you're going to get really great content in there as well as um, that relationship with your vendor.
0: And when you say great people, you mean uh, great people to... Profile or great stories or, and, and great writers.
4: Yes, yeah, so we have some really fantastic contributors. Uh, our music editor is Sarah Smith from The Breakfasters. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's spoken to Liam Gallagher for, yeah, great. for this edition. Uh, it's a really fantastic interview. Um, our movie, uh, our film editor, Annabelle Brady-Brown, has an interview with um, Antonio Banderas. Um, and on the cover we've spoken to Cole Chisel, uh, head of their National tour, but we also have some really good writers as well um, who've written in this edition and every edition, as well as those arts editors, uh, we have an Anafunda's written an essay for this edition. So we're, we're really fortunate in that way.
1: Yeah, and as well as that, in in this particular edition, you're kind of celebrating some of the vendors and people who have been part of the the Big Issue family for a very long time. Tell us about some of those, and and I guess how you wanted to celebrate their contribution and, and role in the Big Issue.
4: Well, the Big Issue is our vendors; they are the heart of the Big Issue, so. It, they 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 are integral to everything that we do. Um, When we're planning the magazine, we think of that as well. Uh, We do have vendor stories in every edition, as you said, and that's one of the unique things about The Big Issue is the stories we're able to tell. Um, And we have a vendor profile. One of our vendors shares their story. In this edition, it's Louis, who is a legend in Melbourne. Um, He's really well known on the streets of Brunswick back in the 90s. He's been a vendor on and off. For those 23 years I think he started around edition 12 um, and he's sharing his story uh, we have vendors who stay for obviously not as long as, as Louis but um, we also have vendors sharing stories in the magazine every fortnight uh, in a street sheet column we've extended it we've got a new look mag for our 600th so we now have an extra page of vendor stories um, and that is really important for us so they share their poems or their letters their opinions and ideas uh, we have uh, a Brisbane vendor ben G, telling his story about being a wedding singer for one of his uh, one of his customers um, it's a pretty amazing relationship that they have um, she heard him sing about five years ago he was a professional musician um, and now he sings on his pitch every morning and she said to him if I ever um, get married. I really want you there. So that's happened. And yeah. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> so how do you sort of keep
0: touch yourself with vendors? Like is there a connection between the editorial team and the, and the people selling the magazine?
4: I moved to, I'm from Melbourne and I moved away to Sydney for a long time and when I moved back to Melbourne and started this job, I discovered that people I knew the most in Melbourne were the vendors so as I walk around the city I stop and have chats all the time. But yes, we do talk to our vendors in Melbourne and around the country for stories and we Bring them or see them face to face but every fortnight we also do a breakfast launch for the magazine so we really treasure that time because we get to sit down and break bread with our colleagues so um, we had a bit of a bigger launch for this one because it's our 600th it's a really good time for us to have a chat catch up check in with what's going on in each other's lives share some stories we have cheese toasties different fancy ones (laughs) at the (laughs) Melbourne office. Some other states do barbecues and and things like that. So it is a really tight community and the vendors love something. They'll tell us if they don't like something in the magazine. They'll tell us
0: because they are, they've got an interest in it. Because um, I mean, if they can't sell it, then that's their livelihoods as well. And that what a really unique interaction. Because anyone else making magazines, you know, they're selling it to newsstands, and of course, the newsstands want them to sell hmm. as well, and distributors want them to sell. But it's this is very personal. It's a very direct line.
4: It is, and so they do tell us, and we have a unique um, sales team. Essentially, they get very. We get immediate feedback. feedback. Feedback from their customers and also from our vendors. Hopefully, I'm pretty sure they like chisel uh, when we showed it to them on Friday. But yeah, sometimes it's hit and miss. We we do try to consider that as well when we're putting together the cover. And for us, the magazine needs to have impact on the street. It needs to stand out. There's a lot of stuff happening on the street. We need people to see the vendor and also see the magazine at the same time when they're a few meters away. So that's a, a bit of a different thing when it comes to Considering the Big Issue covers.
1: And just speaking of the covers, I love the story in the current edition of the person who appeared on the first edition of The Big Issue. Yeah. And um, tell us that story.
4: So, Shep Huntley is um, a juggler and he makes bubbles now. He's relocated to Byron and he was on our first cover. The first cover was about buskers in Melbourne. Um, and he uh, was approached as part of that story. And now he knew about The Big Issue because he spent time over in London busking. So, he understood that concept. Um, um, and so he said, yeah, great, I'd love to, to do this. And he was really stoked about being on the cover, he told us, so much so that a few months after, I think a few weeks actually, after it be, appeared here, um, he was over back in London and he was carrying it around with him all the everywhere. I um, mean, he had it in his backpack and he went uh, to a footy match over there. I think it was Arsenal versus Chelsea. Um, and he saw Cathy Freeman in the crowd and he ran over to her and said, Cathy, Cathy, look... I'm on the cover of this new magazine called The Big Issue in Australia and you're on the back cover because she was in an ad for Australia Post and she said, amazing. Um, I she hadn't run the Olympics yet. So anyway, um, so she she signed it for him and they had a a little bit of a chat and so he still got that signed somewhere in his garage he said (laughs) um, preserved but he was really proud of of being on the cover particularly the first one um and I think that that's the thing about the big issue is that it it does have those amazing stories but there is also that connection to the magazine that People have that's a lot different than other publications. Mm. Well,
0: it is a social enterprise, really, isn't it? it and is. and it so it does other things. And I suppose mm. people really know the big issue because of the magazine, and might think that the big issue is just the magazine. But mm. it it has more going on than that. Like, do you, you know, there's still the soccer. Mm. Yeah. A tournament that happens and other other things that you're doing as yes. well.
4: So we have the Big Issue magazine and we also have a women's subscription enterprise. So we found uh, it was around 10 years ago that the majority of our vendors were men. Um, and we thought, why, how can we work with more women? And we were sort of told that for a lot of women, it's hard to be out there selling on the street. Um, a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness come from a domestic violence background. It's still the leading cause of homelessness in Australia. Um, And so we thought, what can we do? And so we created the Women's Subscription Enterprise, which employs women to pack the mags to subscribers. Uh, And we also do social procurement work. So they work for third party people as well. They've extended that. It's fantastic, safe environment. They love Uh, There's a lot of joy in that room when the women are working together. There's a lot of friendships there. Um, But we do have the street soccer program as well. Uh, So there's 17 uh, locations around Australia where anyone can go along and play football. Um, So it might be people who are experiencing homelessness or disadvantage, uh, people who might be new to the area or new migrants to Australia. Um, and it's a really great way of building community. Uh, It's great for health and and that sort of thing. Uh, And we do have a – we sent a team to the Homeless World Cup um, in Wales earlier this year, so there were players from all around Australia that uh, got to go over there, and they won a few awards. They won a a Sports Personership Award, which is really great, and I think our coaching staff uh, won an award too, which is really great because – George and, and the guys who run the street soccer have do a great job and they've been doing that for a long time. Um, and, and then we also uh, do the classroom program. So school students come in and Uh, We have guest speakers talk to them about homelessness. They're people who um, have experienced homelessness themselves. Some are former vendors or current vendors as well. Um, And so, yes, there's a lot of other things going on at the big issue more than the magazine. There's
1: so much that's grown out of it. I mean, looking ahead, you know, you're marking this 600th edition Mm -hmm. milestone and you can kind of savor that for a while, but there's another edition to produce and so on. What are the initiatives or activities you're kind of looking to expand on or do more of into the future?
4: Look, I there's a oh look there's a, a lot of things going on we look we've got a calendar for example out at the moment and our vendors are selling the magazine and the calendar at the same time so we're always looking at other uh, things perhaps that we can get our vendors to consider selling so we've got to try and think if there's anything else that we can do to create another income stream for our vendors um, and then there's the digital magazine and and all that kind of stuff, and there's um, a few other things that they're they're looking at as well um, and it's also as you said, um, we do sell in some rural regions uh, and maybe extending in in some other areas.
3: Mm.
4: I love a, a, an ambition, particularly around magazines, because
0: it's, you know, it's not it's not easy. Advertising, all that stuff, we've heard about it so much that we've got an example here of an innovative model that 23 and a half years old is still um, trying new things and um, breaking new grounds and achieving its aims is a pretty cool story. So um, well done, Amy and team and vendors. Uh, and um, yeah, all the best for issue 601 and beyond.
4: Thank you. It's the Christmas edition. We have Lionel, who's another vendor on the cover so look out for that one awesome <laughs> thanks
0: so much for coming in big issue editor Amy Hetherington I can get this out and you should go and find your local vendor on a street corner or cafe near you
1: thanks for listening to this podcast of triple R's the grapevine a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context broadcast live on triple R from Melbourne Australia every Monday
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the R website.